1: Hello and welcome to this latest episode of the Energy Insiders podcast. My name is Giles Parkinson, I'm the editor of Renew Economy and joining me as usual is David Leach from ITK. David, uh, how are your power bills going?
2: Uh, my power bills are fine, Giles. We've, we Last year I spent more money than I should have electrifying the house, electric car, solar on the roof, nine kilowatts. Uh, ducted air conditioning, got rid of all the gas heaters. So, but that's not me and my house and my $20 a month or $14 a month bill that we're worried about. It's uh, everyone else's. And uh, and we've got a great guest to talk about it, have we not?
1: Well, we do. But just before we go to the guest, um I'd just like to point out that that's probably what the rest of the country needs to do, what you did. And hopefully not overspend, but at least kind of electrify everything and go renewables and storage. So um, you have shone the path to the future, David. So congratulations. But um as you say, I'm <laughs> um,
2: following you, Giles. I think you did it years ago.
1: I think you've gone further than me, so congratulations. Um, Let's have a listen to um, our guest. We caught up with uh, Josh Stabler from Energy Edge, who knows all about the inside workings of the energy markets, and uh, we just talked to him just a while ago. Josh Stabler from Energy Edge, thank you very much for joining the Energy Insiders podcast.
3: Thank you for the invite. Glad to be here.
1: Well, I think the words to describe the crisis in the energy markets at the moment, apocalypse, um, bin fire from the new energy and climate minister, have you seen anything quite like what we've been seeing in the last week or so?
3: Not in the Australian market. So this is definitely the most um, unprecedented, most uh, most uncontrolled um, position the market's ever been in. Um, this is clearly a market under serious distress. Yeah. Uh, so it's definitely something that... So never, never before have we seen this type of event.
1: <laughs> and, and this next question probably invites a very long response, but maybe we can sort of cut it down in pieces. Um, how did we get here? What are the
3: causes? Uh, the primary cause is probably our, uh, is our connection now to what is going on internationally. So the, the gas prices that are currently pushing through the, um, the Australian market are around about that 35 to $40 a gigajoule. Now, that's the same kind of price that we've been seeing in the international space over in Europe since about September. Um, The the primary difference up until now is is that the domestic price of gas has remained substantially lower than the international. Um, But once the coal price um, started to drive higher in April, uh, that sort of broke the the floodgates with regards to um, how we connect to the international markets. Uh, And since then, uh, it's just been... Pushing through, and we've now got market of prices that we've never seen before. We have um, traded prices in excess of three hundred dollars. Uh, we have three out of four gas markets in uh, intervention um, coverage, so it's definitely something we've not been in before. Um, in terms of how did we get here, uh, the yeah the, the the most crystallizing point was that coal has gone from a hundred dollars US a ton to four hundred dollars US a ton. And the coal-fired power stations, primarily in New South Wales, have become energy-constrained and their fuel costs have risen substantially, and that is just pushed through into the, the rest of the markets and broad.
2: I might add that uh, my research indicates, uh, and I'm going to hand back to Giles, that the the coal price has gone up for a bunch of reasons, but primarily coal uh, supply in New South Wales and I think to a lesser extent Queensland is down about 15% due to specific technical problems at a couple of mines, but more broadly due to flooding uh, that we've had in the Hunter Valley and to a lesser extent in Queensland. And uh, so that's why, uh, and then the international price has been very high, but the domestic actual physical availability of coal in Australia is, is much lower than it should be. Back to you, Giles.
1: Well, look. I regret, and, and I don't know whether John's got anything to say about that. But um, another point I guess I'd like to make is that, um, and I sort of get you to comment on this, John, is that it basically underlines the fact that the Australian grid is still fundamentally fundamentally so dependent on fossil fuels. I mean, despite all the progress and the talk that we've had over the last five or 10 years and the amount of capacity that we've built, in South Australia, we might have 64% renewables and even they're finding it really hard in the last week because they're still, the gas is so expensive. So when it is switched on, it's pushing prices up anyway. But we've got sort of grids like New South Wales and uh, Queensland, which are basically still 80 or at least 70% or even more um, dependent on coal coal power and gas.
3: Yeah it's um certainly the uh it, over the last 5 years um one of the primary um targets of the the C has been to watch what's happening in the gas markets so with the um with the connection of the lng um at curtis island um that commenced the the gas price inquiry which was primarily targeted at making sure that the gas market didn't um, have any uh, undue um, outcomes with uh, a, a very small number of participants in control of such large amounts of the reserves into the uh, into the Australian and onto onto, an, an invest, onto the um, export boats? Um, but what I think has been the sideswipe here is just how coal has changed. Um, so you know this disconnect that we've had uh, in terms of the fossil fuel pricing of gas and and of now of coal pushing through, um, you know, this has been something that has, uh, it's been part of the sort of the, the growth of the Australian industry with regards to what happens in exports. But that is also driven through in terms of um, the connections of international coal prices into the domestic um, electricity grid. And that meant that um, we're now exposed. We're now um, at a position where if international prices rise, which they have, uh, that increases our costs, and that makes the entire in, um, sort of energy grid very much uh, when it's dominated by coal. Um, that that pushes through, and that's that's um that's I guess a um, something that's obvious when you take a look at the distribution of prices. Um, so, so Josh,
2: of, if I just sorry. Uh, sorry, I wonder if I could just step back a little bit because uh, I'm looking at the actual production of coal-fired electricity being down significantly in the last two or three months as we've had this particular explosion in electricity prices just recently and pushing into futures. And we've seen an increase in gas generation. So yes there's this but there's always been this price linkage for the la- ever since the LNG plants were connected. but now we're seeing for the first time um, uh, you know, gas prices going to these uh, fully offshore levels despite the domestic contracting. I guess what my question is: how, I reckon that on a, if if this persisted for a full year, gas demand for power generation would be up 50, 60 petajoules, which is about 15% of uh, you know uh, demand in 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 within the NEM. I mean, what's uh, could you comment on the physical demand side of things? I mean, how much do you think uh, the actual increased demand for gas is is responsible as much as the price linkage?
3: Yeah, so coal is, um, I just did these numbers today. So coal um, for Q2 compared to Q1 is down about 850 megawatts um, across the, um, the black coal, the brown coal um, of New South Wales and Queensland. And uh, so the, I mean, Q2 is a lower demand period than Q1, so that accounts for about 300 megawatts. In terms of what's responded, uh, natural gas and uh, from Queensland and from the southern markets contributes about half of that um, differential, and the rest is coming from Snowy so um you know it's uh it's uh, the passing through of so the gas generation is one part which is lifting up, and that's lifted up by about uh was my numbers, about fifty percent increase in terms of the dispatch um sort of quarter and quarter for the natural gas um but it's also aligned with uh the southern demand of gas retailing um lift with uh with the, the change in weather. So um, yesterday's demand was 92% higher than the Wednesday before. Um, so we're seeing, and that was a record three-year peak demand for gas consumption in, in the Victorian region. So now that's only this week. Um, the, the conditions didn't change this week. The conditions changed basically at, at April, April 1st, especially across Queensland and New South Wales. Um, so the, the uplift there was initially uh, the coal exit, the gas generation increase, no, you still haven't had a response from the retailing side at this point. Um, so it's risen up, and that has been uh, what did the bridging of the of the pricing, brought it up to the international parity, because that was basically the next step. There wasn't really anything in between those two in terms of pricing. Um, so, and so that's...
2: Yeah, yeah so, so just to be clear, so gas demand has increased... And to uh, am I correct in saying that the only way to get that gas at the margin, which is above what people were expecting overall, was to take it away from uncontracted international supply, and and has to have to pay the international price, therefore, to do that, uh, and that, the,
3: yeah, yeah. So, um, I, I, you know, the reasons for why um, the domestic price of gas has remained. Twenty-five dollars below the international since September is possibly a question in itself. Um, So there's been a lot of, um, in in, you know, uh, the ACCC has investigative powers into um, the the the, you know into the producers. Um, So it's likely that there has been some uh, type of uh, response by the producers to uh, limit the. the, the sort of um, aggressiveness that they might take with regards to the market up until then. Um, once the bridge, once this, once the change occurred, and we started seeing coal going, there was there was no longer anything stopping it from going up. Um, and once it rose, it's now at a point where um, it, you know, it's it's hard to see why it would fall, with electricity remaining so high, um, international parity being there. You know, there's there's very little magnets to bring it back down towards ten or fifteen dollars again.
2: Josh, and do you keep an eye on gas storage because we have got yeah. some storage at various places, particularly in Victoria? And uh, I'm just wondering, you know, if uh, if if for whatever reason, uh, gas-fired electricity demand continues to to increase, and and yep. you know, heating demand for more generally will increase during winter, which we've only just started. Yep. Um, are we? What's the actual physical
3: position like in your opinion? So um, Iona, which is the primary one in um, Victoria, has 18.6 petajoules of gas. Now, um, that's out of 26, but the the sort of the misnomer of the numbers that they give is that zero is not zero. Um, There is a buffer of buffer sort of gas required in order to keep the structural integrity of the facility. So basically your your range is about eight-ish up to 26. So now that means that we're about 50% available in that facility. The, the last um, 24 hours, we've been, or the last two days, we've been running in excess of 300 terajoules a day. Um, that is about the level we were running last June, when uh, the Calide Sea events were um, pushing through the market. So, uh, Longford outages, Yellown flooding, um, and Queensland running hard to meet the Callide site being offline. Um, so, it's running at, at you know, basically at, uh, at full full capacity into the market right now. Um, but that's only been in the last week. Up until recently, uh, you'd had it ran a little bit during late May, but it's basically been um, um, paused for a while.
2: So you know, in the end, uh, if we start to run physically uh, short, really mm-hmm. short, in Australia, uh, and we're at administered price, I suppose the answer will be that at the margin, the uh, Queensland LNG producers will divert some export cargoes one way or another back into the domestic market they'll either do that officially because they're told to or they'll they'll unofficially work it out
3: yeah so QCLNG, shells um facility um, has already um reduced um, capacity so um, about 1st of may they they were going for most of so there's a there's kind of a peak and off peak period for the lngs there's the um, September through to uh, the beginning of May and then each year there is a bit of a step change then that happens there and lots of outages occur. Now this year the, the extension into May has been continued by um, uh, APLNG um, and GLNG is maintaining their their, their production levels um, but QCLNG has dropped about 20% and 15% of their capacity since the 1st of um, May which is likely going back into the domestic market So uh, there are some variations in terms of storage, in terms of um, production, um, but that's where most of that gas would be going back into would be um, the domestic market from that facility. Now we had an outage at APLNG in the last couple of days, but because it happened so rapidly, I don't, I think production actually got reduced rather than redirection into domestic, which was unfortunate.
2: Sure enough. And even LNG plants, even though they have uh, the cascade process has very good uptime, uh, you still do get outages. That would be my comment. Um, yeah. Now, let's, uh, so that's what has happened. We've got an increase in gas demand and we've got very high international prices and yep. the physical market is very tight, therefore. And so the price connects to the international price. Uh, uh, now, let's look at how that is going to resolve itself. Uh, my feeling is that over the next six months, uh, coal production will recover as the flooding worries recede and as particular mines like uh, uh, Mandalong get over their technical issues and move the long wall, blah, blah, blah. And then we'll also start to move into lower electricity demand when we get into spring uh, and, and much higher solar production as well and so kind of the pressure will come off do you think that's a reasonable not it's obviously not going to come off fully but it will just the maximum pressure will will start to ease up a bit do you think that's uh you know what would you say about that
3: so um i guess at the moment the the forward market is still remains quite buoyant um out out into the into those forward periods um so you know as a as you know risk analyst in me says you know you look at the traded market willing buyers and willing sellers putting trying to put down their their numbers against particular quarters um my the the concern right now is is how many willing buyers and willing sellers there are in the electricity market and therefore how relevant some of those forward markets are at this stage so in terms of what brings us out of this space i mean um we have, you know, going into Q4, high, your high, high, high sun, low, lower demand is, is beneficial for the the daytime pricing. Uh, in terms of the um, the the evening peak pricing, I don't. While we might get more capacity um, in terms of coal to be able to utilise, that doesn't necessarily change the amount of coal, the price of coal. Um, so if you've got international. Coal prices getting pushed in either as a cost or as an alternative opportunity revenue. The result on the full, on the electricity markets the same. The, the 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 generator has a different windfall position in terms of whether or not they make profit. But in terms of do they choose to burn coal domestically at a loss compared to what they can sell it over externally into in, 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 export markets that creates a tension with regards to how they operate it.
2: That's what I thought, Josh. uh, And I'm sure there's an element of that for for some of it. But I was speaking to one of my coal mates today, uh, uh, and he said that at least in New South Wales, it's not that easy for particular mines to reconfigure where their coal goes to. You know, it's a lot of it's associated either with conveyors or the power station owns the mine in the case of the Vale's Point, which is unusual, I'll admit, in Chain Valley, or they just can't, you know, the West, the Springvale mines can't get to the export markets. And so, uh, and a lot of that coal is actually contracted more or less as to volume and price to an extent. So, I, I mean, I just ask you. I don't know about the situation in Queensland so much with mines like Curra and that, but but yep. I think there's only a limited ability myself to to reconfigure supply and to arbitrage that price.
3: Yeah, there isn't. It, it's the I guess the complication is is the electricity market is a marginal price um, market. So if you know if Cogan Creek's got a dollar a gigajoule coal, well done to it. It can operate at full capacity. It doesn't doesn't? It's not going to change the marginal price. Um, because it's far too low, and it doesn't cross the bound, cross the marginal um, the, the sort of the boundary. So it's, it's it's it does still come down to whether or not there is a uh, an energy constraint, or there are mines that may be going by some rail to these sites, which can be rearranged. Part of the part of the complication of the the rain events and the rain implications on these, on these um, uh, on these facilities, especially in New South Wales. Is that we're still deep in La Nina territory? Um, we, you know, this is this is looking very heavily like we're going to have another third year of this um, in terms of rain. Um, so, you know, it doesn't mean we're definitely not out of the woods. Um, I mean, the, the the conditions, the weather conditions that we've had have been the most unusual I've ever seen. I've never seen a a storm go from basically Gladstone to Melbourne in a straight line. Um, you know, these are these are very I. I You know, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't. That 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 is a confusing thing to look at, and to try and work out whether or not that is now a new norm.
2: I'd agree with that, Josh. I'd agree with that, and I'm going to hand back to Giles in a second. But uh, you made a point earlier, which is one I keep. I, I, I tell as a joke, but it's deadly serious, and that is that the futures price doesn't actually tell you much about what the price. It does. It doesn't predict the future. I mean, a year ago, we all thought the Queensland price in FY23 was going to be $43. A few weeks ago, we thought it was going to be $150. Now we think it's going to be $230. I mean, all three of those numbers can't be right, and, and probably none of them are right. And equally, the price, what we think about the FY24 price might change an awful lot over the next six months. Is, isn't that possible?
3: yeah definitely and this is the um complication which is the what we're connected to so being connected to the um the the international coal market price being such a driver of of the of some of these pricing outcomes means that uh that's no longer within the control of you know of you you've, you've suddenly externalized all of that you've shoved, you've you've connected the international market in and now we've got something that we're that is deeply outside of our control, um, you know, Russia invading Ukraine, uh, and the implications of the sanctions on that, um, in terms of what that means for uh, the, the, you know, the coal markets across the planet. Um, you know, this, and that's same with, with, with our, when we do, you know, when, now that we have connected to the international um, uh, prices at, at around about 40 bucks a gigajoule. Um, so that, that driver is is creates these economic magnets that we are drive which we get pulled towards, um, now there are ways of of disconnecting them. There are points at which you know, as you're saying before, we could, maybe we could get more coal in. Maybe we could get it under a under a long term legacy contract. Get that in and and create some disconnection between those two. But the the magnet still is sitting there. It's still pulling on the market and any any issue. Let that's where it gets pulled towards. Um, so you can you can you can keep things away. It's possible. Um, it's just that you've now got something with a you know a, there is a there is a a never-ending sort of weight on the market.
2: Yep. I'll hand back one more question from me, and then I am going to hand back to Giles. Giles, I do apologise. No, it's uh, all good, David. Uh, this is the uh, the gas uh, producers, uh, sorry, mm-hmm. the gas customers are forever jumping up and down, wanting the government to control the price and give them gas at, 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 at what they think is the right price. Uh, now, I, heard, I read today, and I must admit I forget, I forget the exact details, but I understand that uh, the the government can't, unless it changes the rules yet again, it has to wait till about January or something before it could Ah. do something about the uh, gas reservation scheme anyway.
3: Yeah, so the Australian Domestic Gas um, Security Mechanism, ADGSM, um, what it has is it has some very clear um, rules. So this is one of the things I just wrote up earlier today. Um, so the, the, one of the clear things is, is it needs to be a shortfall. So in other words, customers are not able to get gas, not that customers can't afford or that the gas price is a negative margin um, to their business, and it has to be fee for the forthcoming calendar year. So, um, and and it actually automatically appeal, it repeals itself on the 1st of January, 2023. So um, it is questionable whether that uh, is is that affects both the AGSM implications or the trigger being called. In terms of the the call it needs to be, there are some um, details in the guidelines about how that should be done, um, that it should be bringing information from say AEMO and other other parties in order to um, assess the forecast state. Now the the thing that's going on right now is we've just had a peak gas day in Victoria. Um, There was enough gas coming in from Iona, there was gas coming in from uh, from Queensland, and there was more than enough gas coming in from Longford to be able to meet all of those ones so that all customers who asked for gas were able to be met by gas met. met. So there is no shortfall on the peak on a peak day. so the the conditions right now are not the type of triggers that this this act is trying to find, which is a um, a, a clear indication that if the LNG uh, participants continue to run extremely hard, there would just be and not enough gas for for Australia. Whereas what's actually happened is is that um, they have reduced their exports and they have put their gas back onto the into into the um, pipelines to deliver into uh, into into Victoria. Now there's only so much of that they can do. The pipeline's only so big, and there's only so much they can pass by Moomba. So not only is there a limitation getting to Moomba, there's a limitation leaving Moomba with Moomba's gas as well. Um, so if you deliver all those, that, that's the part which is on the AGSM. The second part that they ha- also signed on in 2021 20, uh, is the heads of agreement. And that says, so the, so the AGSM talks about volume, doesn't talk about price. The heads of agreement only talks about price, doesn't talk about volume. So, um, and it talks about saying that you um, when we need to offer gas into the domestic market that with regards to the spot price LNG producers could expect for un- uncontracted gas and the term prices that they could get. So the current short-term spot prices in Melbourne, which is not where the netback is set, the netback set in Walla Miller, um, are right now higher than what is a spot, carg- spot gas is going through on JKM. But the annual price is still two, you know 50% below what you would get for an annual price on JKM. So it's, it's, it gets a bit, mud, mud, mud. sorry, it gets a bit, bit muddy. Sorry about that. Give me one second.
2: That, that's a gas buyer. I'm not very happy with that answer, Josh, but. <laughs>
3: um, sorry, sorry about my dog. Um, so, um, um, so that, that affects what price that you can, uh, you can expect from a longer term contract as opposed to a short term contract. And when you're trying to marry those two up, it does get a bit difficult. So, um, yeah, and then there's uh, in that same note there's all the regarding all the reporting to the ACCC, So yeah. um, you know, yeah. I yeah. think a, it's lot a, f- of, a lot
2: of lot of ring around but in the end, it, it's not clear that there's uh, official guidelines in place. Back, uh, really enough enough evidence for the government to step in uh, as yet. Back to you, Giles.
1: Well, my question is about um, yeah, you know, what actually can um, they do um, over the next couple of months? I mean, we kind of know what the long term solution to a lot of these problems are. Sort of, you know, a faster, faster transition to renewables and electrification of the, um, uh, of, of as much as possible. David has talked about the sort of the seasonal variations that will probably relieve the tension um, later on this year. But I guess the crunch time is over the next three months. Um, you know, we've got these issues. Chris Bowen um, was talking today about of all these meetings you're going to have with state ministers and with regulators and with market operators, and they're talking with the industry and suppliers and consumers and things. I mean, what What sort of tools and what sort of levers are available to them, josh? and and apologies, if i I think I might have caught you John beforehand, so apologies. For that. That's okay. <laughs>
3: um, the levers that are the left, so of the ones that are pre-existing, so obviously the heads of the agreement and the AGSM don't don't give a lot of um, uh, benefits there. The current um, trigger, so the, the existing protections that exist in the gas market and the electricity market, the cumulative price threshold, in the uh, electricity market, they are, um, they are very high thresholds. So you require sort of $650 average prices, and then you will cap the market at 300 In the Victorian gas market, it only needs to be about 40 It needs to just break $40 in order for the market to be capped 40, for 40 $40. So they're a lot more stringent in the Victorian market, which is why they're currently in a cumulative price um, um, state. Mm. The, the, ta- the, sound, these, um, the STTM needs about sixty-five dollars. So there are already some levels of protections that are going to kick in and probably realistically bind for most of this coming winter for, for Victoria. Um, that now that 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 does, that's not great news if if forty dollars is going to destroy your business. Um, but in terms of uh, will will it be $800 gas prices getting pushed through well no that's not that's not a likely result um, in that space now you your your issue that you're getting right now is is what you definitely need some change to the fundamental cost of coal generation that it hasn't either disconnected from the international market or get um, the the ones that are Re- replaced by something that is not um, because uh, while they have a cost structure that is, you know, $20 a gigajoule turns into $200 a megawatt hour, um, they are always going to be something that's, a mag- again, my economic magnets, a magnet for other other businesses to, to shadow price. So in the conditions where gas, is, gas prices were high, coal-fired generators were able sh- to shadow price gas Now we have the similar but reverse situation with high gas prices. Other assets can shadow price up to the new coal price. So be it snowy or be it hydro, be it any other asset that wants to try and um, dispatch into that space. So, so that fundamentally, so to give you an a, idea on that,
2: I, I, I've been, you know, if you look at some of the solar contracts that were being written, um, at PPAs, uh, you know, a year or two ago, we, we heard numbers with a four starting with a four, and even lower I've heard in Queensland, and yeah. now I reckon you could get numbers starting with a six or a seven, or possibly even if you were lucky, an eight, uh, as to how. So that's for you know someone with a zero marginal cost that just happens to be available. Sorry, back to you, Josh.
3: Are uh, you all that? And that's, and that's exactly what the, this thing is going to do. This is pr- basically the largest market signal the energy market in Australia has ever seen in its life. This is saying invest, 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 but invest the certain type of asset. So, a, a wind, um, wind generation um, quarter on quarter between Q1 and Q2, its average dispatch is out. The difference between them two is like three megawatts. So the the assets have they haven't changed their behaviour between Q1 and Q2 despite everything else that's going on. Not because they don't, you know. That's and I don't say that as a as a negative thing. I say that as a positive thing, in that they 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 they're not causing any of this. Um, uh, solar dropped, but that dropped because it's brighter in summer than it is in autumn. But in terms of their behaviour, they're not showing any of the uh, of the decline or any of the the the, the, the implications of what this external market event is you know Russia does not export renewables they export fossil fuels so everything that's happening that is that, that has a you know as a, has a finger pointing at Russia is, be, is because of its implication on fossil fuels because of its implication on oil because of its implication on gas and because of its implication on coal so that is exactly where all of those things are, are occurring um, and it's pushing through into that uh, into that market now what does this mean? This means that, uh, you know, the, the old adage, high prices are the cure for high prices. Um, this is a... Hey, that's
2: my sector. line. Sorry, go on.
3: <laughs> I, think there's, I think there's a few people running around with that quote. Um, but it's, 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 it's very, very true. Is, is you know, This will bring on a lot of capacity to, to, um, in, in response to it because it's basically saying that you can't... Can you rely on these assets in the future? What happens if we have another event just like this? Do you get burnt twice or do you go and find something else?
1: Hmm. Basically, I think what you just told me then, Josh, was that all, for all the meetings and the hang ring by the, uh, the various ministers, there's really not much they can do. And in the end, they should probably be thankful because it does actually provide this massive investment signal for all the pain that will be suffered um,
3: in the interim. Uh, it does appear that way.
2: I, I want to mention more broadly that there are a couple of other things that you could think about if you were the government. Uh, uh, that won't work instantly, but might reconfigure the market a little bit. One of the one would be to tax more windfall tax of some of the export profits. Now I don't I don't advocate that, but I point out that that's what's been introduced in the UK. And then you could it conceptually, if you're a Labour government and believe in the sort of social redistribution, redistribute distribute that money uh, back to hardship affected people. Uh, that's one thing, but, but the most the basic element in the short term that can happen uh, is is increase in coal production, right? That's the most the thing. And I'll put, globally, yes, we've had Russia, but we've also had floods in Indonesia. Indonesian coal production has been down. Uh, we've had extremely hot weather, you know, in Indian summer, so to speak. I've, I think I've heard that phrase before. That's pushed up demand there and coal demand, and and there is a, a sort of bit of panic around about it at the moment and and I don't think was well, no levers but time will time and, and prices will fix this a little bit sooner Josh I want to ask you as we get to the end of this conversation if you look at the FY 23 and FY 24 baseload electricity futures markets would you be a buyer or a seller at those these prices
3: <laughs> um, I think that the the um the fact that the initial margins and variation margins in different weeks um, w- uh, have been in the billions uh, has limited the ability for um, natural sellers, so shorts of swaps, to enter the market, which has meant that we don't have a willing uh, seller on this um, in this market. Uh, so, in that, and that means that we don't have a clear uh, downward pressure that you would get from. Uh, that side of the space, so we have willing willing buyers we just don 't have willing sellers, which means that um, the the fundamentals of whether or not the market is operating cleanly right now are are hard and then we see that when the when we see um, you know a, a slight change in the market and the market falls twenty five dollars in a day um, you know there's and that I guess that 's my my general answer is is that I think that the uh, it has been uh, it, it doesn't have enough defense, so therefore the prices are probably higher than you would anticipate. Um, but the, you know the spot prices how are settling at 280 something dollars in Queensland for the quarter to date. So they're not illusions. they're not uh, the forward market is lower than the current quarter. Uh, so uh, you, you, it does rely on something being better in the future in order for those prices to come down. Uh, if the conditions are the same or worse, then what's the what's the what's the what's going to bring that price down? What's going to what's going to force it down? At the moment, there's just there's not a lot of what I would call bears in the market, bear signals that are going to bring this thing down. Uh, there's a lot of connectivity to the international market, and uh, and you know I just don't see that space cleaning up um, that that quickly. Hmm.
1: Well, Josh, look, a fascinating um, conversation um, about some of the details of the markets. And um, thank you very much for joining the Energy Insiders podcast. Thank you for having me.
2: Uh, Josh, it's a pleasure. I I love to uh, to talk markets and trading and... uh... Uh, you answered that last question like a, uh, like a real politician. I didn't uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's a, I, I think myself of course that the, as you say, the markets are not trading properly at the moment. No one wants to contract. what buyer would want to lock in these kind of prices for any length of time? Uh, and so liquidity will be very, very low uh, and, and uh, everyone's just going to pay
3: spot while they have to and, and wait. Can I add one last statement to the to the second last question, which was about the um, what can the government do? Um, the the only thing of, of I guess for importance is understanding who is the the market is not is not a it's not just a, a blob. There are particular businesses and, and people and uh, of particular um, exposures. A a business that has an international exposure that sells internationally um, has recently had lower electricity and lower energy prices than what you would see internationally making them internationally competitive um, now they are having the same kind of prices that you're seeing in Europe or in or in North Asia with um, the higher gas and electricity prices that are going on making those businesses now not having a, a a systemic benefit but just competing now you've got retail you've got retail customers so electricity and gas who have had a, a Dmo go through that is you know, passing through fairly low um, spot prices and forward prices. Um, that has held, that means that retail customers are not, in theory, paying a lot. You have retailers who are exposed to the high price, high wholesale price, low tariff pricing, which is going to be quite destructive to the second tier retailers in that space. Um, but your only, your leftover position there is, is, is domestically focused, energy intensive businesses, um, if they're not energy intensive, then you know then this is not a this is this is a, a marginal increase in their co- in their energy. If it's if it's three percent of their costs going to six percent, you know it's not good, but it's not it's not it's not business destructive. Whereas something that was that was twenty or thirty percent um, and does not have the ability to pass those costs domestically to their customers, they're the businesses, they're the ones that are under threat that need the government you know, they're the ones with the legitimate claim for government support.
2: I'd agree with that. Um, and, and and a lot of them will have contracts anyway that, you know, only only say a third of the contracts would roll off in the current year. And even then, when you say they don't have the ability to pass the cost increase on, it would only be because they're competing with imports and imports costs haven't gone up in, uh, as much. But, you know, as, as we're talking about, actually these energy price increases are, are global. They're not just local. I, I, you know, it's, it's quite, and there aren't in, in that real, I'm, I'm sure there are. Um, anyway, I'm not saying any more about it, because there's always examples that can prove you wrong. But I'm not sure that that's a massive sector that we're actually talking about of uh, businesses that depend on low en- energy price, uh, where they're exposed to it, but their competitors are not.
3: Yeah, and that's where I think it's important just to be able to you slice it all up and work out what the percentages in each of those different categories are. You can find somebody who's who is who's you know acutely getting damaged by this outcome, and then you can find out other sections. You know, does LNG care that there's a high or low domestic prices with regards to their exports? You know, for their 66% of the um, domestic gas? Uh, no, they don't care. They're they're big boys. They can look after themselves. You've got Intertech Pivot, say, who has a hu- buoyant record profits, buoyant um, fertiliser pricing because, uh, and, and, and high gas prices, so their margin has increased. They've got higher costs, but they're selling at an even higher price. So they're not in, in the same sort of threat. So it's about trying to find out which businesses are actually, you know, where this is causing an unmitigatable problem, and find other ones. So any business that was, um, that was exempt from the Clean Energy Act is a, energy a trade-exposed energy-intensive business, and therefore, they don't need any support. They, they, they should be somebody who doesn't need to be um, needing any, any, any um, help out of this because they are already clearly trade-exposed. So it's just, I don't know, it's just... You know, I, when I think, Josh, when you, when you talked about do. it,
2: I, I think myself, the more I think about it, outside of some trader at some financial institution who's bound to have made a bad bet and we don't know yet because bad news, another one of the market rules is bad news travels a lot more slowly than good news. Uh, but but I think it's the uh, retailers that because, because of the DMO and because the DMO lags the change in the spot price because it always does... Yep. Because it always does. Uh, retailers in general can't pass on the cost increases that they're seeing. Those that are physically covered are just, it's just a loss of like AGL, for instance, it's just a loss of potential profits as opposed to, yep. as opposed to actual losses. But any retailer that hasn't fully hedged or can't cover its load is basically going to be going backwards fairly
3: quickly. Yep. And that's why we're seeing the, uh, the small retailers um, exiting, you know, um, and i We've lost whatever three or four of them already. We're going to lose more. This is not. There are lots of businesses that will not survive this, um, even if they're hedged. They may not be hedged. This 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 might last longer than their liquidity. Um, that, you know, that's this, another
2: Keynes uh, quote. All right, markets, isn't it, Keynes? Markets can <laughs> remain no,
3: ir- irrational longer than you can r- remain solvent. Yeah, that's the one. So, same kind of problem. Uh, you know, they might, and you know, and what? Uh, okay, let's throw out another potential plan which the government could do. Why don't they um, guarantee credentials out of Aemo to um, help the set the um, cash positions that they have in the ASX um, so if they're good for the money in the Aemo then can you use that use the government to stand in and say I will defend your cash position over here on the futures because of your future earnings on um, out of the plants in in the uh, in, in the NEM and therefore from those two things I can stand in the middle and keep you. From hitting cash limits and having to exit and not trade because of these cash constraints, um, and and you not be offering products to counterparties that need them because you just don't have the ability to play in the market anymore. You know that's there's, there's going to you know there's there's ways of doing governmental support that are not just give that guy money. Um, there has to be other answers than that.
2: All right. Well, I think we should uh, wind it up there. Uh, As interesting you, you and I, I'm sure, could talk for hours and hours, but probably even Giles will get
3: bored with it. Yeah, this is red wine territory. Giles will get bored <laughs> with it
2: eventually. Uh, Josh, uh, 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 thanks very much again for joining the Energy Insiders podcast.
1: Thank you. That was Josh Stabler from Energy Edge. David, what other catastrophes are we going to see before all of this plays out? I mean, Josh talked about more small energy retailers going down. I think that's inevitable. Um, who else? Um, some consumers are going to find it very tough. Some industry players are going to find it very tough with the costs. Um, any other casualties in the energy market, per se?
2: Yes, big energy retailers. <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh <my God.
2: laughs> we, had, we had uh, there's only three of them well actually i lie there's more than that people like erm for instance uh would uh who's now owned by shell would have to think very hard about how well they were hedged uh considering for instance that they sell a huge volume of, of power like i can't remember how many terawatt hours but it's like five percent of the whole australian market and they don't have any of their own generation hardly so uh but for that reason i expect they will have hedged themselves very carefully but if they hadn't Uh, they'll get fined out of the, uh, you know, uh, big... uh, And if you ask me about winners, well, probably, possibly a a linter might be a massive winner because they've got far more baseload generation than they've got uh, retail exposure. Uh, uh, But um, if you look at uh, the the big three, uh, I would say, well, AGLs uh, had a disaster, although not directly related to electricity prices and that the current uh, management's... uh, Uh, been sort of fallen on their swords um and in the case of origin they fessed up that they that they basically have been unlucky stuffed up whatever you want to call it but anyway it hasn't worked out for them
1: well origin have um really um is, is quite an extraordinary announcement this week um discovering that um the biggest coal generator in the country can't get enough coal um it expects to generate an Annualised basis, about 10 terawatt hours. It normally does about 16 terawatt hours. So that gives the size of the impact. Um, it's got problems at the um, its mine supplier. someone actually pointed out the other day that um, origin originally or raring originally was going to have its own neighboring um, open cut mine but the locals um, arched up against it Um, so you did point out that vales has got its own mine and of course the brown coal generators do in victoria so they're kind of um, okay but origin on one hand is suffering on the energy markets and on the retail side but it's winning big on the gas side
2: yeah, yeah, it is. But look, the basic problem, Giles, is that the big three, AGL, Energy Australia and Origin have just for a decade, uh, tried to protect their coal generators by not really investing in any more renewable energy than they absolutely were required to do under the LRET scheme. And that's the problem. It's all very well. And we had Frank Calabria and we congratulated him quite rightly on, on getting in ahead of AGL by closing Araring early. But what he didn't do was the second part of the equation, which was guarantee that you'd have enough wind and solar supply to replace it until those guys get that basic message that they are selling bulk electricity. And if you're selling bulk electricity, you have to have a bulk supply. And if it's not coming from coal, it has to come from wind and solar, which is cheaper anyway. And so, you know, why haven't they got it already? It's because they haven't done the hard work of investing in it and managing it up, whether they buy it directly or contract it or own it doesn't really matter. They're just not in the, they're not in the race.
1: No. Um, let's quickly go to AGL. Um, quite dramatic scenes there earlier this week. Um, the chairman and the managing director and a couple of other directors resigning. Um, the demerger um, abandoned and another strategic review, um, which we'll find out in September. Look, if there was a gold medal for strategic reviews and trials and plans and things like that, I think Australia would come out on top.
2: Look, Agil's had so many, it's such a checkered history. If you look at it, I won't bore readers with going through it, but uh, listeners, but I could write you a long story about the number of CEOs they've had, the number of stuff ups and changes of directions. It's, it's not worth talking about. Uh, in the end of the day, they need to settle down to some consistent path and then stick to it like crazy. You know, you can't. decide to be the biggest wind generator in Australia, abandon it two years later, become the biggest coal generator, and abandon that three or four years later, you know, after firstly Mm. going into New Zealand, going into gas exploration upstream, you know, you name it, they've been there. And at at the end of the day, what have they got? Absolutely nothing.
1: So just one more question before we wrap up. Um, Mike Cannon-Brooks has succeeded in stopping the demerger. He will get two seats on the board. No, he he won't? Okay, I don't think
2: so, no, not automatically. He's not in 11% right, is 10% of the company, more or less. That gets you one seat on the board. It doesn't get you two, uh, definitely. You've got to buy more shares for that, and that's the fundamental problem. If you ask me what I think will happen to AGL, the most natural thing to happen would be for AGL and Brookfield to link back up again, talk Chris Bowen and the ACCC into the fact that it's actually a good idea and make a renewed takeover bid at somewhere, uh, whatever the right price is, uh, and get back on, you know, a plan that everyone would probably be very happy to adopt right now.
1: Because basically, as you just point out, and I guess that was going to be my question, that with 10 or 11%, he's not really in a position to influence any anything, unless for some reason the current boards sort will of hand him control, which they probably won't do.
2: No, that's that's about it. But at the same time, nature of horse are vacuum. Someone's going to emerge and do something there. Probably lots of other people are also looking at AGL now. Uh, because as I say, the market doesn't like a, a, a rudderless ship with no direction, uh, uh, which has got a very massive and valuable customer base uh, and a lot of other assets uh, and is probably worth uh, in the long run. If they do it right, a lot more money than it's worth today.
1: Yeah. Hey, just one final question I just thought of. Chris Bowen had his first press conference today as climate and energy minister. We've actually got a climate minister for the first time in a decade. I don't suspect he imagined that his first press conference would be like this, dealing with the issues that he's actually got. Interestingly, he brought along some of the emergency fire. The emergency uh, chiefs of former emergency services are talking about a much higher climate target, which is really interesting that he should surround himself with them on the first um, press conference. But um he probably he didn't look like he was actually enjoying um, the, having to deal with this um, bin fire as he described it left him by the coalition and also from international events.
2: Yeah, well, there's a lot of international events, but yeah, and it is poor planning and everything. Look, I think the difference is that the ALP. Everyone will be pushing the ALP to do more. Uh, and he'll be listening. That's the difference. The, the massive, it's, a, it's a difference in tone and in style and in approach and, I guess, in ambition. Uh, we all think that the ALP ambition is, is nowhere near enough for the science, and we think it be for the very good reason of the science. Uh, but how you move from point A to point B, there is a reality in politics as well as a reality in philosophical science, uh, and he, he's got a much more chance of connecting them up, uh, basically, than the other side ever did with Angus Taylor, who was uh, arguably the most difficult obstructionist, hard to work with, uh, turn his back on you type of person you, you'd ever see in politics, and guess what, he's going to be the opposition federal treasurer, so good luck with that.
1: Yes, I think we heard him barking in the background um, during the conversation with Josh. But anyway, um, David, thank you very much. Um, Thanks to Josh as well. Thanks, of course, to our regular sponsors, um, Evergen and Pylon. And thanks to all the listeners out there. We'll be back again uh, next week with another great interview and some discussion about the latest energy events. And um, they're all very interesting. Bye for
0: now. Energy Insiders was brought to you by Evergen